Volcker shock. I got to say the Volcker shock, the seventies, the three economic crises of the seventies. Uh, what made the modern world more than uh, the Nixon gold shock, the Volcker shock and the oil shock all happening within like a, you know, five, six year span. I tell you, man, like that's, that's the decade where it all happened, you know? It, it is definitely like one of these, one of the pivotal, right? One of the pivotal moments, one of the pivotal time periods, uh, because, I mean, I think you're right. Like so much happens all at once. And I, and, and there's this kind of um, institutional imprimatur that the economists of the time, right? Like bring with them and like you kind of, you know, you get, right, you get Volcker and you get, um, kind of all these other people who are coming in and saying, okay, we know, we know how to do this. We know how to fix the problems. Right. Um, and for a while, it kind of, you know, depending on which side of the, um, depending on which side of the problem, I guess you're on, uh, it, it kind of looks like they did. Um, but of course, nobody reckons with the seed that that is planting for, uh, for downstream effects that, you know, we're like living with now. When you say like the imprimatur of the of the economists at that time, I mean, that was at the tail end of a time when expertise, uh, you know, whether it was, uh, uh, you know, a guy with one of those uh, clip on ties and the short the short sleeve, uh, you know, like the IBM engineer with the horn rim glasses, you know, sitting in the, the mainframe or sitting in the uh, mission control, you know, like that was when experts were going to the moon, but they are, I mean, they're also going to Vietnam, you know, like there was a whole, there was a culture of experts and there was a culture of sort of like, you know, the American mid-century called on all these sort of like secret geniuses from like, you know, Topeka, Kansas or whatever. And it said, here you go, you get to sit in the room now. And it turns out that a lot of those people were really good at sort of being dead-eyed freaks for doing whatever it was, you know, whether that was like writing Rand Corporation papers about how to, how to blow up Vietnam better, or whether it was, you know, like, how to figure out how to, to build a machine that could go to the moon. I mean, there was a lot of different things that like people with a lot of expertise and sort of learning who had sort of been through that World War II experience and then gone, been educated on the GI Bill. Like that was like a whole culture that really doesn't exist now. You know, now I think we have these thought leaders, so-called, you know, we have Malcolm Gladwell's and we have, uh, you know, Steven Pinker's and we have all these people who, you know, are, are, our elders and betters are all these, you know, they're all just cretinous idiots at this point. They don't do anything. They write really bad cringe sentences and that's all they do. You know, uh, they use the word we way too liberally in their like op-eds. They like invoke this majestic we, oh, you know, we need to do this. We need to do that. It's like, speak for yourself, man. Um, but that's all these people do now. And they write spurious books about human motivation and, you know, why it's the surprising, the surprising reason that like, the thing that you didn't think was true was actually true. You know, that's all, that's all that like anyone really does. Like, this is why people love Elon Musk, you know, because he seems to do something. He's like the one, you know, or Bezos or like, there's some of these people who seem to do things. They seem to like have a concrete idea of like, we're going to muster some collective effort or so, you know, some sort of Promethean striving to like create something where nothing existed. And of course, it's all just like these, you know, weird, sort of backwaters of like things there's like worse versions of things that we were doing 50 years ago basically when when we had this generation of like the the freaks with the pocket protectors and the horn room glasses and the short sleeve uh dress shirts sitting in the ibm office or the rand corporation and you know in that in that culture you can understand how someone like paul volcker can really grab the reins of the economy and do something because that was an era about in which the experts did that. They grabbed the reins and they did something else. That doesn't make sense to us now, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I do agree. I think, I think that you're, uh, you, you hit on a very useful point about the way that like Musk and Bezos and uh, kind of a lot of those other guys, how they kind of put on the appearance of doing stuff. You know, it is interesting because it's like people think that like he's like this big inventor and engineer or whatever, but like it's not true. Uh, the real engineers are like, you never see them because they're not like shit posting on Twitter all the time. He had, what was his weird version of PayPal called? I forget. He had like a weird version of PayPal. That I think it was called like PayPal. X payments or something like that. It was just called X, right? Maybe it was just called X. <sighs> Anyways, so he had that thing. And then he basically has been making like, you know, essentially like a trillion dollars in California regulatory subsidies to like, you know, basically like launder our uh, like hopes and dreams of having electric cars through like this one South African man. 
And like, that's how he's made all his money is like through regulatory arbitrage, essentially. It, arbitrage isn't even the right word. He is like sitting at the nexus between like regulatory credits and the entire auto industry. And so he gets to take like a chunk of the payments every time that someone doesn't make an electric car, which they can't do because like the, the technology to make those cars has not like caught up to the, the fact where like, it, you know, the regulators wanted it to be essentially. But, but I think that's no longer the case because uh, I think that like now real auto companies are actually like have caught up with it. Right. I mean, they have access right, to all right, the right. same, like all the same information. So people are like, like Toyota and, and Chevrolet and like whatever they're like making, they, they are ready to make electric cars. Right. They're, so and th- and those are like actual real automakers and not like I mean for whatever you know whatever you want to say about them they're actually like companies that do build stuff I mean like Tesla builds stuff too yeah. but it's like as you said it's not how they were making their money for the most part their record of having machines that like you know lock you inside them while they burn is is a lot higher than you'd like to see for like uh, an automaker let's just say that just the other day I was. Uh, flipping through twitter and there was like some guy who i think he was like maybe a cnn reporter or something like that and he had taken like tesla for a, like a tesla for a test drive with their uh whatever what's it called i forget the uh, the abbreviation is fsd but i can't must be like full something drive or something anyway it doesn't matter it's like their their auto their autopilot quote unquote um and he was like he tweeted something about how like the autopilot kept trying to drive him into like a truck and like sped up to like hit pedestrians <laughs> it was like oh that's great that's what i want on my roads is like uh yeah, you definitely. know a deranged vehicle that you don't know how it's going to react you know it's 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 a good metaphor actually for sort of the, the way the economy works now where it's just like everything has been given over to an algorithm and whatever it does must be right so you just got to get out of its way because who knows what it's going to do next but all we know is that like if it kills somebody, if it, you know, if it drives you in particular into the embankment, then, well, you know, we just got to get someone else to get in the car because like the you is not the important thing. The important thing is that there's be somebody who's just being, you know, carried along on these currents, fulfilling the role of whether it be driver of the Tesla or, you know, CEO of the big company or whatever it is, you know, we're all just subservient to it at this point. It's, it's fully, you know, leapt beyond the barriers of like human control. We could rate it in. It's not like this is a you know necessary state of affairs or anything. As I was saying before, it's like all of these like what you can and can't do is purely a creation of like the state or you know the international collection of states or whatever. They wanted to stop it, they could. But the problem is that we've all you know we've existed like this for almost fifty years now. It's very difficult to you know see outside of the system and to like imagine a way in which it could be different. And so therefore, like you know, we just keep doing the same thing that we that we're doing. We keep giving the control to the, uh, you know, the economic version of the Tesla autopilot with pre- predictably disastrous results. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this brings to my mind like a parallel between these two things, right? Because, uh, you know, a lot of times you get this, uh, whether, you know, whether, quote unquote, the algorithms are being used in, uh, you know, half the time, by the way, like for, you know, anybody who's listening, half the time these algorithms, I say, quote unquote, because they are hardly anything more complicated than like regressions, okay? Like something that like, you know, Basically, like a, like a competent college student could could understand. Uh, but never mind that. Like, uh, you know, whether these algorithms are used for like whether they're used for like credit scores or for whether they're used for like, um, let's say, carceral purposes or whether they're used to drive, drive cars. Uh, the kind of the justification is the same. Right. They, 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 in, they bring along their own justificatory like mechanism. How sad for you. You got run over, uh, you know, by a Tesla. You got denied parole because the algorithm spit out like a number that, you know, says you're bad. Um, well, th- that's just the, that's just what happens. Right. Like that's just you're, you're subservient to the algorithm and you have to you have to do what the numbers say. And kind of and it's very analogous, I think, in, in some ways to the way that I think economics has been wielding its uh, its its institutional authority where it's just like, well, you know, you might want this or that. But, uh, you know, I've got the numbers right here and the spreadsheet says, uh, you know, this number of people have to be unemployed. And so that's what's that's what we're going to do. Right. Like you can't argue with the numbers and, and not enough people, I think, have like necessarily the inclination or the background to like actually argue with the numbers. So and certainly like you know, lawmakers, even if they were inclined to do so, I think very often don't. And so you get this like 
essentially justification by obfuscation, right? Like I'm, I'm the big, I'm the big expert. I've got the spreadsheet. I've got the algorithm. Like you got to do whatever this says. Right. And like, and if you don't, well, you're just anti-science. You're whatever. You're, you're, you're some kind of like disgusting Luddite. Well, what I was going to say about that is, is like really what these things, they all perform the function of management consulting. Oh, absolutely. Which is essentially to provide a, a third party who makes it so that you don't have to say that you're the one who wants to do it. And there, there's no responsibility that falls on you for doing this. You're just enacting the prescription of the thing that you brought in to tell you what to do, typically with the understanding that they would tell you to do what you already wanted to do to begin with. And this is a very lucrative thing that, you know, function, the primary function of management consulting. And, you know, it's, it's basically the primary function of, uh, you know, an algorithm that says, oh, well, gosh, I really would have liked to give you some consideration, uh, Mr. You know, sex offender or whatever. But it turns out that, uh, well, I'm just going to have to put you in prison for as long as the chart says. And, and of course, these things are, they're geared toward more carceral results than, than less carceral results. But, you know, it, it covers, it's, it's, it's very nice. It's very nice because it says, you know, well, it would be kind of pesky if I had to be on the record on this, you know, it would be unfortunate if I had to be on the record saying, well, it looks like we had a lot of profits, but we're still going to have to fire a bunch of people. Now, if I don't have to be on the record saying that, if I have to be on the record saying it's actually the fault of the consultants, it's the fault of the spreadsheet, it's the fault of the whatever the case may be, it's just a lot cleaner for everyone. It serves the, the function because I think everyone knows, everyone knows that uh, if you're in these roles, if you're in the roles making the decisions, you're not really making decisions. It's sort of been preordained what you're going to do. And in fact, like there's a very narrow band of outcomes that are acceptable in that role before the algorithm, whatever it is, the profit motive, the, the shareholders, whatever you want to call this force that propels everything, this uh, incredibly powerful, but also incredibly diffuse force that permeates through every single event and every single decision uh, once you get to a high enough level. That force will eject you if you don't do the right thing. If you wander outside of the boundaries of what's acceptable to do, uh, it will f recruit someone, as we've talked about many times before, it will pull someone else in who will do its bidding, both as like a means of like not having people get mad at you and also just being able to sleep with yourself at night. It's, it's nice to have these little additional things that are telling you, yep, yep, yep additional piece of evidence that I just had to do that. There was no other way. It's interesting. I mean, one of the, one of the points that I, I think uh, I, I wanted to kind of hit on with Marshall before he had gone, but didn't have time to, was that, you know, the way that um, economics sort of has been uh, constructed, I guess, uh, if you want to call it that over the, you know, again, over the course of sort of certainly since let's say the neoliberal period is that it has been, with good reasons. I mean, some of this is like, uh, obviously uh, makes sense is that, you know, economics has sort of like called, like turned itself into a, an, uh, a numerical science, right? Um, so we're talking about things that you can measure. We're talking about uh, inferences that you can make and, and so on and so forth. And, and a lot of that makes sense. I mean, these are like very sensible methods for solving certain problems. But then there are also like problems where it's hard to set up like a clean measurement of things. I mean, not just in, I mean, in economics for sure, but it's hard to get like a clean experiment just in general in society. And if you get one, you're certainly like, you're certainly very lucky, but sometimes you just see a situation and you're like, okay, well, what would happen if, and you ask yourself like, what would happen if, I don't know, like we changed something, we changed a parameter within this, like within this framework, or even better if like, you know, let's say, um, Something like like uh, let's let's take the merger, right? So you can talk about like mergers and it, their their um, effect on the market. Uh, and people have devised kind of like these indices that are sort of intended to say like, well, you know, under this condition and under that condition, uh, you could say that this is or is not a monopoly. Like blah blah blah. Okay, fine. But like, you can kind of look at some of these situations and you can just say like, okay, well. I may not have the perfect index that will tell me this or that about this 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 problem, but I could see that if you just allowed like let's say two merger like the merger of I don't know the the two biggest cable companies in this region, like that would be bad, right? Like or if you allowed if you just allow in like let's say Google or Apple or Facebook to indiscriminately consume like any business that even remotely threatens them, like that would be bad. 
Um, and that's like a qualitative judgment. That's not like a, there's not like a number that you can necessarily like put to it that says like, it will be this much of bad. But I think you can justifiably say that it would be bad, right? Like qualitative judgments are still judgments and they're still premised on like reasonable like inferences, right? They're sub they're subjective, subjected to the same sort of inferential uh, standards. And it's not just a number that carries meaning, right? Like qualitative inferences carry meaning too, and they matter. And even if you can't necessarily quantify something, that doesn't mean that it's valueless, right? It just means that maybe the specific indices or whatever you want to call them that we have available for us to like don't capture that information. But that doesn't mean the information is not there. So if I if I were kind of like I mean I mean maybe 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 the answer maybe the word for this is like you know sort of Veblen esque because um, I I think he maybe in my mind he's kind of the the person that I most directly associate with with this kind of um, with this kind of thinking. But I would have liked to you know see maybe like a more qualitative aspect to a lot of these questions, which is not to say that. The quantitative aspect is like meaningless, but it's just not the whole story. As you know, as as discussed, like in the the previous thing when when we talked about the uh, uh, what do you call it the um, the Mannheim. Well, I was just I was reminded I I uh, had occasion to speak with a mutual friend of all three of us about uh, a paper that he shared on Twitter, uh, which was about like the hot the hot hand supposed fallacy in basketball. Basically, like you know people. Um, like prospect theory, like uh, Daniel Kahneman had a study that basically, you know, his his sort of premise was there appears to be this hot hand effect. You know, people claim that like, if you make three shots, you're more likely to make the fourth, that, you know, you're heating up and on fire and that kind of stuff when you're playing basketball. But then he did a bunch of studies that kind of basically show that like, well, there's no real effect. But it turns out that like, actually, there's like bias in the data. And the, the, the reason that there's bias in the data is because there's certain patterns of results that like, mean that you're more you're much less likely just based on sort of like how aggregates of like Bernoulli trials work in conjunction with one another if you have in a limited uh, a limited space of say 100 it gets smaller the bigger the space is but if you have a limited space of 100 turns out that if you make three in a row you're much more likely to miss the fourth one just because like the the way that the information is patterned within that there's just not as many patterns of like HHHH versus, versus HHHT. And it works in kind of this weird mystical way. Like it, 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 it convey, it, it sort of blows your mind to even think about like how you can correctly predict that like if a coin flips three heads in a row and you guess that the next one is going to be tails, you'll be right 54% of the time. That is crazy. It's crazy to think about. Why does that work? You know, but it does within certain constraints that have to do with the patterning of information within a small data set. So when they, you know, when you sort of undo this bias, essentially you find that there are uh, noticeable uh, hot hand effects. Um, and that, you know, there's other data that basically shows that like when people think they have the hot hand, they take tougher shots. And so you can't necessarily compare apples to apples first to fourth shot or whatever, uh, because they'll be seeking out more difficult shots and then, you know, obviously have less sort of a baseline chance to make them. But there is a certain sort of crass sort of Freakonomics version of, of the world in which of course, it makes perfect sense that human beings have a set percentage of shots that they make that is unaltered by things as silly as like, am I feeling good about making this next shot? But it turns out, actually, that that is, you know, as anyone who's like really played basketball could tell you, you feel like that sometimes you feel like, damn, I'm, you know, I'm going to make this next shot and I know it because I'm feeling good. And, uh, you know, that actually does happen. It's like, it's a real thing. And in these sort of models of human existence and experience, and it's it's interesting that you know Kahneman himself sort of overturned one sort of simple model of of uh, you know the rational human being. But you know I think he he and a lot of his other followers have this shortcoming where they kind of they do see that people as like these probability machines sometimes, and like you know you lose something in that quantification as you were saying. You don't there's some qualitative thing experiential like knowledge and understanding that actually like you can set up an experiment in which it looks like that doesn't exist it looks like that's just some sort of folk hokum you know but actually like it does exist even in the numbers you know it exists in the numbers but it of course you know it exists in the mind which is just as real as anything else you know yeah i mean a lot i think a lot of these you know uh, having having read a fair number of these uh sort of not necessarily but with the hot hand but kind of a lot of these behavioral econ uh type studies there's like 
there's like a hesitancy that I have about them, which is that I think they're informative in some like laboratory sense. But anytime that I, I see people trying to like abstract from that to, let's say, um, you know, more, I would say comprehensive statements about society or whatever, I just, I, I get like, it's, it, it causes me like to just get tense because it's like, okay, well, yes, you have obtained, let's say, let's say that, you know, the effect is real and you've obtained it in the laboratory and like all that stuff. It's not fake, right? It's repeatable. People have replicated it. All that stuff is great, right? I mean, no, no knock on your actual research, but it's also like, you have to think about, okay, are the circumstances in which I'm like taking these measurements, are they sort of, do they have ecological validity, right? Does it translate to the world at large? Does it, is there, is there like a match between what I'm doing here and what happens in the world where, let's say, people go out to vote or, you know, to, to bring it back to uh, the debate from the previous time, right? I mean, maybe the answer is yes, right? But you have to show that the answer is yes. You can't just assume it. And I think a lot of these, uh, a lot of these, a lot of studies that I, that I see, especially like in the political science world, it's just like, Oh, okay. Well, we we got this effect in the lab. Uh, we're gonna assume that this translates to like real votes and real voting behavior, um, and we're done. Like, dust off our hands. Uh, let's uh, let's all go have a beer. I'm like, I, I don't think you could do that. I don't I don't think it works that way. <laughs> There's something intuitive to me about statistics that I don't think is intuitive to a lot of people. And I I have to say I'm a fan. I like statistics. I'm interested in statistics. I read a lot about statistics, despite not really being, uh, you know, someone who puts a lot of things into practice, except maybe doing fantasy basketball or whatever. But like, I think that people get the sense that like, because you can sort of randomly sample an existing data set, like for example, a list of all the free throws that Dwight Howard has ever taken in his career or something. And of course, you know, triv it's trivially true that like a random thing that you pick out of that set will have a chance of being a make that's equal to the chance, equal to his career free throw percentage or whatever. But that doesn't mean that his next free throw is going to have that percentage of going in. Whenever you turn this lens forward, there's all sorts of different things that like control what the next one, is. You know, your best guess is probably that the, the, you know, sort of the true percentage of the next free throw. But I mean, the thing is at some point, you know, a free throw is a complex biomechanical motion that is either done correctly, incorrectly, or incorrectly, but it still results in a successful outcome. At some point, like the percentage goes from being some abstract thing to either this has been set down, this has been set so far down the, the road of either success or failure that its probability now is either zero or one. And that can occur at different points and for different reasons. And so, you know, it's, it's when you look at like the, the true probabilities that went into making up a data set as large as, you know, every free throw ever taken by someone who's probably taken 10,000 free throws in their career or something like that. Then you're talking about, you know, there's probably for, for whatever reason, free throws that someone had like about a hundred percent chance of making just because they were like in the groove and like, you know, they had everything lined up and we're going to do it right. And we're like in the perfect frame of mind. There's probably other ones where they had like close to a 0% chance of making it maybe because they just got injured or, you know, um, there, something is distracting them in a way that like is imperceptible to the outside, but like, you know, really does affect what the outcome is. I guess this is so like trivial. It's not even worth mentioning, but like, if you could solve the physics of the complicated system of flipping a coin, you would know which version, which thing it would land on. It is not, it, it appears to be random because of the limits of our knowledge. It is not in fact random. There is actually like a determined, you know, based on the complex biomechanical and like environmental set of factors. What happens when you flip a coin is, you know, can be solved. Well, it can't be solved, but it could be solved. How about that? <laughs> so, you know, uh, treating human beings in this way where we're just sort of like these percentage monsters who are just, you know, well, there's a probability of this and there's a probability of that. And, you know, we just got to do all this, the solving of the probabilities. That is actually like a simplification. That is like a model of what's happening. It is like a truncation of reality. And like believing that everything that goes into that is actually the sum total of reality. I think 
that that's what happens. It's like when you take an economics class and all of a sudden everything looks like an economics problem. You take a statistics class, everything looks like a stats problem. And I think for some people who are, you know, in this sort of policy world, the Cass Sunsteins of the world or whatever, it all becomes this kind of, they, they use their hammer to hammer in all the nails, you know, uh, and because they have the hammer, that's what they do. So I don't know if that really connects up to what you were saying, but I'm, but I, I'm just, I'm interested in that sort of like the, the disparity and like the divergence between a world of statistics and a world of reality. Um, and, you know, statistics can tell you a lot about reality, but they're not, the map is not the territory there, you know? Right. One of the pitfalls, uh, I think that maybe we've talked about before that, um, I think you encounter, especially when you are, you've got some index or you got some number that you're trying to maximize, right? And you, you've got it into your head that like, okay, making the number go up, that's good. Um, is that there's this perverse effect. I mean, it's known by the name of Goodhart's law, but um, which is that the, the, the number, the metric itself becomes the, like when the metric becomes the objective rather than the indicator, um, you start looking for ways to game the metric. Right. So it basically loses its its um, usefulness as an indicator of what's going on and becomes a just a, another thing to be uh, adjusted, you know, up or down as the uh, as the case may dictate. Right. Um, and I think that that's like kind of an underappreciated, uh, perhaps problem in a lot of these measurement contexts where, uh, you know, people, um, you know, people say, OK, like, well, what we have to maximize some some number right uh and then it turns out that like the landscape that yields that number is actually like very complicated and it's controlled by a number of parameters some of which you can specify and some of which you can't specify um and tweaking some of those parameters you know maybe maybe yields like maybe let's say makes the number go up and we think that's good uh, and it doesn't cause any, you know, any bad effects, but maybe you tweak a different parameter and the number goes up and then it causes like terrible things to happen. Right. Uh, you, and, and again, some of those things you might know, some of those things you might like from the, whatever, from the math, if you have math that tells you this and some of the, those things you might suspect. Um, but either way, like at the, at the point that you become incentivized to just take a number and make it go up or down, you're essentially incentivizing yourself, not not to achieve like some state of the world that 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 number represents but achieve a metric that tells you that what you're doing is right like i don't know if i've probably properly articulated the difference between those two things but it's like you're you're just you're just trying to make like you're just trying to put like something on a piece of paper that says you're doing the right thing instead of actually checking whether you're doing the right thing let me give a basketball example here yeah. that I think illustrates what you're talking about. So like if you ran a bunch of regressions that basically said the only two good shots are a layup slash dunk and a three pointer, then you would want to maximize the version, you know, the amounts of layups and three pointers that you take. And obviously there's teams that do this, but the reasons that those, those might be good shots might have something to do with like the proportion in which they occur in other words, that like there's like a whole strategic portfolio of moves that one player can do that lead to certain outcomes. And it may, in fact, be the case that for some players, the proportion of like successes on certain kinds of shots that they get is because of, you know, other things that if you had them cut down on those, that it would actually make their like good shots less effective. I think this is very obviously the case in like basketball that like there are some players who like the fact that the defense needs to respect certain kinds of shots from them, even if they aren't necessarily good shots, like opens up something about like the portfolio of like, you know, the sort of the strategic panoply that that player can like achieve. And so, you know, the fact that like, you know, there's certain players for whom like the defense has to like account for the fact that they might pull up and take a, a long two, not historically like a particularly efficient shot might in fact mean that like they, that player gets a layup more often than they otherwise would have had they, decided completely to eliminate the long two from their sort of, you know, strategic universe of possibilities. So there are ways that like in sort of the, the closed nature of a game that like, I think that these things can become a little bit more apparent or whatever, but I think that's a good example of, you know, how, how there are things that might look inefficient. They, you know, they look like you, oh, you can just sort of round out that, that 
whatever it is, whether it's the long two or some kind of employee benefit program that like makes somebody happy or whatever. And then you just say, assume that like you, what we can do is just maximize the thing that says you're doing the most work, you're scoring the most points, you know, ah, the, 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 the efficiency index is going up. As you said, you know, we're, we're judging, we're like leading toward the metric or whatever, but then actually like the, the reason that the things that were so efficient to begin with has to do with the fact that there was this whole broad array of different things that like, you know, a different thing may have been the loss leader for that to be the efficient thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I think that's a great example. I mean, in, in my in my thinking, uh, I think this was, uh, again, uh, had actually a lot more to do with like, um, things like elections, you know, uh, because just because this was foremost in my mind, uh, from the last time uh, that we talked, and the, the idea there is the kind of like, that, you know, even in even in a sport like that, even in a situation like basketball, right? Um, you know, basketball is very constrained as all sports are. Uh, there's like a limited set of moves that anyone can make um, and kind of, you know, a fairly limited uh, set of moves with which, let's say, your opponent can respond. But even within that universe of moves, um, there's like a lot of variety that's available to you, right? And so uh, this the precise effect that you're talking about where the efficiency of a particular, let's say, shot has a lot to do with the way that uh, defenses have to react to various other things that you do. And that you can't just assume that like every, you know, that you can't, you can't just assume uh, ex ante that you should just only take three pointers and, and layups because that will cause you to put yourself in a state where, where those options are going to be blocked for you. Um, already tells you that like even in such a limited setup the landscape of possibilities is actually very complicated right i mean it's impossible to really reason it out directly you just have to kind of adjust on the fly you 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 occupy some local like level in that in that space and then you do something you make a move and then your opponent reacts and you say ah like here's an opportunity that it opened up for me. And maybe that opportunity is a three-pointer, but maybe that opportunity is just like an open long two. Uh, and in that situation, you take it, right? Um, when, you, when, you step, when you step out into the more complicated, like real world, right? Um, and you try to analyze something like an election, there's this tendency, I think, to like just collapse uh, everything onto like this one number. Right. You just you just say, OK, well, what, what did you win or did you lose? Uh, and if you're a little bit more sophisticated, it's like, by how much did you win or by how much did you lose? And it's like, well, the landscape of possibilities in like electoral contests is like very large. Right. And not only do you have to kind of like respect, let's say, you know, the overall economic situation or uh, whatever, the, you know, whether it's a it's a it's a you know, presidential year or not, like all this shit, right? You have to, you have to take that into account. You also have to take into account like various like local eccentricities, right? And like the specific example I'm thinking of here is like, uh, you know, people are like issuing extremely hot takes about like, you know, what Eric Adams's election means for like, I don't know, the left or whatever. And like, I'm not convinced that it means anything like it doesn't matter. Like just just to just to, you know, for people who are not like intimately uh, familiar with New York City politics, like the like we had a we had a uh, we had a ranked choice vote primary uh, where there were like 15 candidates or something like that. But there were only like three or four serious ones. And Adams was one of them. And in like round seven of the uh, of the ranked choice runoff. Uh, he like defeated the next the 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 next highest candidate by like by like 05 percent of the vote or something like that, and now he's like the mayor of New York, right? Um, like, does that mean something? Is that is there like a deep meaning in that in that number? Like, I would argue no. Like, he could have just as easily lost by 05 percent of the vote. Uh, a lot of people left their ballots unexhausted. We don't know how those people would have voted. Um, it's essentially kind of a luck of the draw, but like. The, the takes industry, you know, needs to consume this product and like shit out, you know, uh, uh, like an opinion on like what this means. And just like doesn't mean anything. It's just it's just like it's a thing that happened and it has like particular uh, meaning within. Obviously, it has a particular meaning for politics in New York City. Uh, but the fact that a guy who has been like in local politics for 30 years is now the mayor of the city, like 
it's just like not that remarkable. Okay. Like, uh, it's, it's not, it doesn't necessarily indicate some sort of like seismic shift in either local or national opinion. It's like not directly deducible from, uh, like all like kind of the ambient, I don't know, economic, uh, phenomena, whatever. It's just like, it just doesn't tell you that much. It's a lossy signal. It doesn't carry any useful information. We should stop, like, we should stop worrying about it because we don't know what those numbers represent. Like, they're just numbers. It's an election. It happened. Like, whatever your, whatever your opinion on it, like, whether it's good or not for, I don't know, for whoever, you should just say that. You should, you should express, like, you should obviously have, like, political, like, views on it. But what you should not do is you should not take this and try to build, like, a like a comprehensive model of the national mood out of it because this this particular like event and a bunch of other events like it don't actually like let like they don't contain the information that you need to do that and it's questionable whether anything contains the information that you need to do that but anyway that's a different story i would just say that like you know going back to sports it's basically like after every election you know we have like a bourgeois media that essentially treats everything you know they they go to like the the halftime crew of jalen and you know uh, Rachel Nichols or whatever to like sit around and talk about how you know oh this means that the Democrats are playing really well they're just they 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 said they needed to rebound in the first quarter and they really did it and you know well it looks like the power dynamics in the uh, NBA are really shifting because those you know those plucky Democrats they they really matched up well on Harden tonight or what you know whatever the case may be I mean that's the valence on which they like cover this stuff and it you know it has just as much meaning as like the outcome of a sports game in the sense in the sense that like in a trivial sense it's like within the rules of the contest achieving a certain you know if you score more points than the other team in the prescribed time of play then you win the game like that doesn't necessarily have any deeper significance about whether you're truly the better team or blah 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 but like you know it gives people something to talk about and for the same reason i think that you know that's that's the sort of the level at which the you know, the corporate bourgeois media like pursues and even like the supposed left. I, I was only thinking about this actually partly in the context of like this, uh, this uh, thing that again, you know, popped up on Twitter where apparently like Jacobin did some kind of like focus grouping on like, I don't know, it's like messaging or some shit, but like, uh, which I don't want to get into too much, but it's like my, when I, when I read that, I was like, oh, like you guys are just doing like the same kind of like, you know, entrails reading that everybody else does. Yeah. Right. Like, you should you should not like this is not what you should waste your energy on like this is not going to tell you uh anything particularly useful because again capturing people in in a lab and you know reading them some numbers or reading them some statements mm -hmm. and trying to get them to like rank those statements or whatever like okay that gives you some limited amount of information but it's really like you can't build a you, you can't build a political movement on that right it's like it just it's no. like that, that's not it doesn't generalize to real life so so like you know you should probably stop worrying about that stuff you know look if you want to say that like you know whatever the vibes in america are such that like eric adams is a really salient person in our politics now like that's fine you know if you just want to do like horoscopes for political analysis like i have no problem with that you know if i mean really i have no problem with like like what am i going to do like what jurisdiction do i have to say like oh no cnn is being bad or oh you know ryan cooper really beefed it in the nation you know in the week this time because he was, you know, he was really interested in poll results. I have no, I mean, I just, that was purely hypothetical, <laughs> by the way, I have no, no beef against, uh, you know, any particular author or whatever on some level people, you know, it's like people can say and do whatever they want. I don't, you know, it's like, I, I try not to be like super nihilistic about it, but at the same time, it's like, you know, the amount of things that I can like d direct my energy at and get mad about, it's like, it's not something I'm super interested in, like whether like the media just like the media is good is the discourse good is the discourse bad i mean the discourse is always bad you know it's captured by the same terrible bad incentives that like you know it's, it's of course it's bad it's always going to be bad it's going to be bad until someone decides that you know collectively we need to fix the badness and god knows if that's ever going to happen so it's going to be bad forever ultimately there is no like movement there's like a brand there's a brand that's the, that's the supposed left you know, and there's people who who consume it as a cultural product, much as like someone would watch sports. They root for the, you know, they root for one team. And you know, actually the team that they root for is sort of a weird team. It's not even one of the two main teams. It's like they're rooting for like their specific people, like within a subset of, of one of the teams or something. It's almost like they have like a little fantasy team within the game or something like that, because they're rooting for, you know, you know, the, the left. They're rooting for 
the, the real progressives and not like the, the, the sort of the corporate Democrats or whatever, uh, you know, which isn't to say there's no distinctions between those, but like really what it amounts to, and I think you saw this with the defeat of the Sanders campaign, there's not a movement behind it. There is a series of affective gestures behind it. There is still in like a completely atomized, individualized society where some people in their sort of whatever you want to call it, their bourgeois affectation is to, you know, to be on the left. Uh, it's not a working class movement. It's mostly a, mo a movement of like overeducated, downwardly mobile professionals. Well, <laughs> that's probably a little unfair, but that is that is where the, the rhetoric of it is. That's that is the chattering class of this cultural affectation is that kind of person for the most part. And so, you know, it's better than they're not. It's better than they're not being that. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying, like, you know, on some level, what we're talking about is like an epiphenomenon of a bad, corrupt, awful, disgusting media apparatus that like happens to be like one of the sort of feel good, positive stories that you can follow within that. At the end of the day, that doesn't that doesn't do that much. You know, that's that's not super meaningful. It's nice that it's there. It maybe can supply some energy and some ideas and some concepts to a real movement. But it is not in itself a real movement. It is. It is a micro brand within, you know, the sports game that is the politics that, you know, people follow. Yeah, I know. I think that's a that's a pretty, pretty fair observation. I mean, yeah, I like I, I you know, I oscillate on this. Right. It's like uh, on the one hand, I think I agree that it's you know, it's good that like it's good that there is some alternative. But then also sometimes I, I look at what the alternative is and I'm like, man, like it just it just feels bleak because even even the people who kind of say that oh you know whatever we're not like corporate democrats okay fine like what's your what's your plan like what's your you know give me your whatever 10 step program and it's like there's there's like step 1 and then there's like step 10 which is like glorious <laughs> socialism i'm like okay well what happened to all the other bits that are in between that and it's just like nobody has a good answer and i'm not saying that you know not saying that anybody has a has an answer but you gotta at least kind of like try to put a program together and not just be like well uh step one is uh you know i get elected whatever the recorder of deeds uh in, <laughs> right in, uh, <laughs> in the county and uh you know and then uh step step 10 utopia right like come on <laughs> so i don't know i mean I, I i hear what you're saying i don't mean that as like a criticism either i don't mean it as like to be negative i just it, it I just think that's what it is, you know? I think you just have to you have to be honest and, and say that like, when people say there is no left and they're really pessimistic about it and whatever, it's like, they're right to some extent, you know? That is correct. There is no like working class, you know, bottom up kind of movement that's like contest for power within the system or outside of the system. You know, there's no, there's certainly no like durable, strong coalition advocating for, you know, like a radical restructuring of the way that like, you know, governance or uh, finance or any of that kind of stuff works within this country. There's there's a lot of people who sort of individually and, you know, maybe with some kinds of gestures toward collective action, but like mostly individually follow this stuff because they're interested in it. They like it and they like feeling maybe like that they're, they're doing something good. And, you know, that's all fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just it's in order to really contest for power, I think, you can't just be like a little collection of subreddits within a big, you know, a big Reddit of like, you know, corporate, uh, like sort of consumer identity, basically, you know, that, that essentially like being on the left, it, it's impossible not to be like, how, how, what, what is there, you know, like, what is there for one person? It's not like, you know, you can criticize the, the, the criticisms of this are all, I think kind of dumb because it's like, what do you want me to do? Like go start the left. I can't do that. You know? All I can do is is, is be a, a a stupid consumer just like everyone else, uh, and you know I can I can write my little think pieces and I can think about these these issues and 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 have opinions on them and you know ultimately it's because I'm interested in it and I like it, uh, you know I would like to be both sort of a, a resource uh, for you know some possible like real left movement in the sense that I think that you know I have ideas and I like to write them up in little things and put post them on the internet and stuff like that and you know if that's helpful then i would love it to be but you know probably it's just it's just my little 
you know, cultural affectation that I do that, but I'd also like to be like a vessel for it in the sense that like, if something truly comes along that I don't want to be this kind of person who says, well, I have my beautiful bespoke politics, my beautiful shining dream of the only way that it can be. And by golly, like, if it's not like that, if the thing that comes along, isn't like that, then I'm not going to, I'm going to put my foot down and I'm going to say, I can't do it because it's not my beautiful shining dream. In that sense, I feel like I'm being a good person, but uh, you know, on another sense, it's like, I can't, you know, there's nothing, it's just me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a consumer, I'm consuming, I'm creating an identity for myself in the marketplace of identities. And I don't really have an identity outside of, you know, my, my own self, you know, I'm not really part of like a culture. I'm a, you know, American white person. Uh, that's not a, <laughs> not a very fun identity to play acts, you know, unless you're like doing hate crimes or whatever. Uh, so you know, like this is a thing that I, that that's meaningful to me in that, in that sense that I can kind of put it on as an identity and say, this is something that's meaningful to me. That's a part of who I am, but, but, you know, that's just a consumer. That's, that's like buying your yourself from a shelf. You know, I don't know how to, 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 to break out. I don't think you can't, I mean, it's, it's pretentious to even think as an individual, like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to break through. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to, I don't even know, but I don't know what to do. You know, it's, it's a tough, it's a, I think it's a, just a tough situation to be in. Yeah. This is why I'm kind of interested in, uh, I guess, the sort of the epistemic angle on this, because I think that, you know, if you are, let's say, if you have a goal in mind, right, you need a program uh, to, to get there, um, then you have to have some like notion of, uh, you have to have some theory of, you know, people call this having a theory of change, but, you know, I would maybe just simplify it and say, you have to have a notion of like what forces cause what changes right like what pressure points can you lean on to affect some like desired outcome right i mean it's just kind of like I mean, it sounds trite when you when you phrase it but i do think that like a lot of times people just don't think through these processes right you just you have to think about okay like you know if you do this like what happens if you do this other thing what happens and that's not to say that you're always going to like get everything right because you know it's impossible to anticipate anything you know everything and no battle plan survives contact with the enemy but you do have to have like some like spread of scenarios right it's the same way as if you're playing basketball right you know you set a screen this you know they they switch what do you do then right it's the same kind of process you have to game this out and you have to try to figure out okay like what are my options at each stage of of this process um and you know given those options like where should i focus my energies and i feel like that this is one of those things that just kind of seems to be really absent on not only on the left but certainly on the left like it just a lot of these things retreat to the level of like the imaginary where you know either people are imagining some some latent i don't know proletarian uh like uh, solidarity that's just going to like spontaneously emerge or some other like you know quote unquote you know historical phenomenon that's just going to like uh, come along and you know sweep us into the uh, beautiful new future um and that just that just seems misguided to me like i don't think things are gonna things work out that way i think you have to make you have to make the things that happen that you want to happen and to make them happen you just have to you have a, you have to have a plan right you have to like sit down you have to sketch it out and you have to be prepared that uh some of your plans are going to be like terribly unsuccessful uh, and you have to revise your, um, you know, your strategy uh, in light of your your options and your successes or failures. That's all. And it's just like it's a very I mean, it sounds very mechanistic, but it's also kind of like it's also just putting one foot in front of the other. Right. It's not like a uh, there's not going to be some kind of like transformation, let's say exogenous transformation that's going to somehow uh mobilize the force of history and uh you know take you to the next level like that's just not i don't i don't think it's going to happen i think it's silly to think that's going to happen and you just have to you have to operate with that in mind <laughs> i guess my you know my my thing is i think that makes sense once you're sort of on a path but like how do you even know you know like what does it mean for me or you or any of us you know sort of hyper individualized you know postmodern subjects to like put one foot in front of the other? Are we just walking toward a more perfect form of ourselves and our self-conception? Or, you know, are, what? who is the we that like, you know, organizes these things? Obviously this makes sense if you're like, you know, if you have like real power, if you're like in Congress or something like that and you're trying to do something, then obviously like having a theory of change and all this kind of stuff, like, you know, you as an individual at that point are punching above like a typical individual's weight. But like, 
me, what is what does it matter if I have a theory of change? I mean, I can bloviate all you want about like what I think would be effective or not, but I I don't have any ability to to do anything. I can just talk. I the only thing I can do is bloviate. You know, um, I'm not a part of any sort of movement. I don't even know where to 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 to, to, to join one. You know, and the thing is, it's like you know, I can I can vote. I can you know, I can become a part of you know local organizations and contest for for local power and that kind of stuff. And all that's great. And I think that, you know, it's steps in the right direction. But I mean, you know, that I don't know if you really need to have a theory of change for that either. It's just sort of like that, you know, that's just something that you can do. So I'm just I just wonder, like, you know, on the level of the individual, have we become so like separated out from one another that like, you know, that really like, in fact, me having like really distinct theories about what I think is right and what should be done is in fact, like counterproductive because it means that like, you know, maybe when somebody comes along and says, Hey, I have a slightly different way of doing it. And I have a lot of people behind me. Are you going to do it? And I'll say, no, my beautiful, my beautiful vision is not that, you know, my beautiful individual vision is something else. And I'm not even like at that point suited to be like a collective subject, you know, like a part of a collective subjectivity. I'm just so individualized at that point that I can't even see that like there's something beyond myself, you know? Yeah, it's a tough problem, and as usual, uh, we fail we fail to solve it. Uh, shockingly, <laughs> in the, in the course of the the, the last couple of hours. Uh, yeah, which I get. You know, like I said, I I was thinking about this the other day, and my thought is like, y- you should put forth your ideas in the hopes that they might be helpful, and you should put forth your. You should also just open yourself up and be humble, and and realize that like the form that you think might not be the form that it takes. And that you have to be ready to sort of put what little you have behind something if it arises, even if it's not exactly what, because there's going to be a moment when something comes. It might not even be for us, but it might be for, you know, who knows when it's going to be, but there's going to be a moment, there's going to be a break, a crack. And uh, if we're all sitting there arguing about, you know, well, actually, this theory of change is just, it just can't do, you know, well, you know, maybe we're not going to be, maybe we're going to be too, too far gone at that point, too separate from one another that we can't, we can't actually do anything. And who knows what the we is even there, you know, that's, we is such a, such a treacherous word in these conversations, but, you know, I was falling into the, uh, the grandiose usage there, the David Brooks, the, the, the Stephen Pinker, the Malcolm Gladwell, we, that we also despise. Right. I, I, I wish I could, I wish I knew uh, to whom to attribute this to, but I believe the phrasing, which is not mine, that I have uh, that I have heard uh, to kind of refer to this as uh, just called you know being alive to the possibility of the moment. Um, yes. I, do, I don't know exactly who uh, who coin whose coinage that is, but um, you know if uh, should you be listening or should you know uh, consider it attributed. 